Welcome to the Digicom Cafe, located at the intersection of faith and technology. We hope you enjoy your cafe experience where we cater to your digital and spiritual appetites, and build interest in the amateur radio hobby, one story at a time. Please stand by as we get ready to launch this episode of, Radio on the Rocks. You are about to listen to a Radio on the Rocks Cafe cast interview, which occurred on March 20, 2019 on Zello, with Danny J, KD5DLJ, and guest Clay, W1PI of Sebring, Florida. So tell us, how did you first get into amateur radio? And uh, what does the hobby mean to you? Well, thanks for the invitation, uh, Danny. Uh, I just happened today, as we were talking earlier, thought about what was my first exposure to amateur radio. And uh, I remembered when I was a young boy, my uncle Jimmy, he managed to uh, get a, a site uh, up in the Twin Life, uh, the Twin Towers, it's uh, a lighthouse in Navasink, New Jersey, the only twin lighthouses in the world. And uh, it's on a very high point, and the lenses had been removed. Um, historically, they've since been returned, uh, kind of LEDs though. And he ha he was all set up there. So that was my first exposure. I, I uh, got to hear a little bit of, uh, of that and CW. And when I heard the CW, I said, Dal, that that lets me out. I'm never. I could never learn that. So that was my first exposure, and I didn't uh, didn't think of uh, amateur radio for years after that. In 1960, I went on to uh, join the United States Air Force out of high school, and they sent me to the wonderful uh, training base at Lackland in uh, Texas, San Antonio, Texas. And while there, they administered administered a test to me um, and it was a code test and they sent the letters A, T, and N, da, 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 it. And apparently I was uh, able to copy those because the next thing I know as I'm finishing up my basic training, I'm headed to Keesler Air Force Base to uh, attend a 26-week intercept radio class at uh, Keesler Air Force Base. Oh, that's interesting. I hear a lot of people uh, getting into it from their experiences in the service, getting into communication. That's interesting. So how old were you when you uh, first were exposed to this with your Uncle Jimmy? Oh, I was about, uh, about 13, 14 years old. Well... What kind of uh, radios did he have? That must have been a long time ago. I had no I, I have no idea. <laughs> I was just a dumb kid going up to see what my uncle was doing. The, uh, the radio school, as I said, it was an intercept radio. And at first I thought, well, what's intercept? Well, they say, lad, you are just going to receive Morse code. You don't need to worry about sending it. You're not going to send any Morse code. You're just going to receive it. So it was a 26-week course, and at first I had a little bit of a problem, but of getting getting the code, 
but I was uh, I had two years of typing in high school, so I was a fairly excellent typist, and uh, I could catch up a little bit if I got behind. So eventually, uh, after I got about five, after about eight words a minute there, I, it kind of clicked, and uh, code has has sounds like words, you know, if if you think about it, uh, like like the C, char, uh, dotty dot it. Well, it has a sound. If you listen to it, it sounds like Charlie got it. So whenever we hear C, it automatically think of you know Charlie got it. So uh, Q, for instance, was uh, uh, da da de da, uh, payday today. <laughs> so we anyway we managed that clicked and the the uh, to graduate you had to to be able to uh, copy 22 words a minute. So I graduated from technical school there at Keesler and security service. I went into the Air Force Security Service and they have some wonderful sites. We have sites in, in Misawa, in northern Japan. We have them on the Aleutian chain. Uh, we have some in Turkey and Pakistan and Crete and well, let's see. I don't know if we had one in Formosa. But anyway, I was fortunate enough to be assigned to the, uh, uh, to a, uh, yeah, 4729. I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, I was assigned to a communications group in Peshawar, Pakistan. And uh, on the way over, we stopped at the Azores. We stopped at uh, Libya. We had an air base in Libya at that time. We flew on to Dharan, Saudi Arabia. We stayed there for a couple of days. Then we flew on over to Karachi, Pakistan. And from Karachi, we flew, I say we all the time, I flew with uh, other guys that were going there, uh, up to Peshawar. And Peshawar is in the Northwest Territories, approximately 15 miles from the Khyber Pass, over. And you've been around the world. I'm kind of curious, uh, did you ever get a chance to copy any critical information that uh, you had to relay on? Oh, yes. Well, uh, you know, it's it's a long time, <laughs> but you don't forget. Anyway, uh, we got we got up to uh, to the uh, air station and we had to uh, fly Pakistan International Airways from Karachi up to uh, uh, to uh, Peshawar. So we were met there, and, and uh, we were driven to the uh, air station. And it's a, as I was going by the, the main dirt road, um, I was observing these humongous, great big rhombic antennas and long wires and, and yaggies and everything you could possibly think of that could be slung in the air. Fantastic uh, antenna farm. So once we got uh, signed into the squadron and all checked out and uh, assigned to uh, to a flight, we had four flights, Able Flight, Bravo Flight, Charlie, and Dog Flight. And uh, we would work three days on, three day, three, uh, we'd work uh, three days, three mids, and th I mean three swings and three mids. Those were days, uh, evenings uh, uh, till to about 12 o'clock and then swings were 
back to eight o'clock in the morning, and then you would have uh, you would have three days off. So we would do that, and when we would uh, we were assigned into the the compound, we had uh, critical uh, passes to uh, allow us to uh, enter. And uh, when I got first got in there, I looked down the row and I see all these operators, probably about 25 operators all sitting in front of, of typewriters and uh, receivers. And when I got to, what they do with you is called side saddling. When you get there, you sit down with another operator next to him. You're plugged into his console, so you hear everything he hears, and you copy as best you can what you thought, how good you were, <laughs> copying what he's copying. And I looked at him and I looked at some of the stuff and I listened to what I, it was unbelievable, the stuff he was copying through. I mean, it, it was an awakening. I thought I knew how to copy code when I got there, but I learned that I didn't really know what I knew yet. Over. <laughs> well, kind of humbling, huh? Well, that's very interesting. What kind of radios were they? And uh, a typewriter. Instead of writing down by hand, you're actually typing what you're hearing. I would think that'd be a distraction. Oh no, no, absolutely not. My, you know, like I said, I had typing before, and um, my my fingers, I I never think about what I type. I mean, I just think it, and it comes out on my fingertips. Um, it's just automatic. It's just just like copying code. I mean, just I don't have to think about it. But um, he sat in a position where he had, and w and this when I was on my position myself. Um, this is what I had. I had a uh, uh, an SP600 receiver on the left side of the console. I had a R390 a Collins R390A uh, mechanical 1KC dig uh, readout receiver. Now this was a boat anchor. This is a big receiver, but in this was 1961. In 1961. Can you imagine having one kilohertz readout on a receiver? I mean, that thing was phenomenal. And it had it had multiple filters in it that we could select the filters. And it, uh, you know, it was just a wonderful piece of, of uh, equipment. Normally, the targets that we had, they would change locations every so often or, or change frequencies. So we used the SP600 receiver as a general search receiver. And then once we found the target again, when, when uh, they moved on to another frequency, once you could tell them by ear, you learned them by ear. Uh, you could uh, tell the almost, well, you could tell the operators, different operators on there, but, um, and sometimes it would be some difficulty finding them, but we generally find them. And the typewriter that we use is a royal, it was a royal typewriter, it had like wings on it. It was a manual typewriter and we had uh, six or seven level, we used to call it chatter, chatter paper that would feed up through the typewriter. And as you know, we, we would type normally, uh, normally we would be typing uh, five character groups, uh, five groups and then a double space and then five groups again, uh, five characters, space, five characters. So that's the way we would copy it, and then it would be torn off and taken to an analyst to uh, to determine what it what it was being said. We had no idea 
you know, as we read it, what, you know, what it said. Um, my primary targets were the Tourtom missile test range. And uh, I would generally do tracking for missile testing between uh, Tourtom test range and the, uh, uh, well, up, up near Japan, uh, the far reaches of the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, they would uh, fly up into that that range, and I would I would do the tracking on them. And there was also another test range at Tashkent that uh, I would sell. I would uh, uh, frequently uh, track, uh, or another my friend in the next uh, console would do the tracking on that. And then when uh, when that uh, wasn't going on, uh, we would do uh, some of these. Uh, uh, penetration flights and uh, what I call that is you'd, you'd get something like an RB-47 and he would be uh, be stationed at Insulek Air Base in Turkey and they would get up and head for the Soviet border at top speed and we would have to plot how fast can the Russians get their aircraft in the air to turn turn it back <laughs> and uh, they would have to get out of there in a real hurry but for a young kid 19 years old that was uh, pretty exciting over I'll bet now was this uh, these transmissions was this one of those typical numbers numbers things they always have all these numbers that don't really mean anything to you yes that's that's correct uh, we would we would be typing the uh, the information on the uh, on the uh, typewriter, and the analysts would come by every few minutes and tear off copies and then plot it. They would plot this on the on the board, and I mean they did it very quickly. You know they these would plot so we could see on a clear plastic board the plotting numbers where they where these aircraft were located. This is what we were tracking was the aircraft locations over. Very interesting. So how did all this play into uh, you getting into amateur radio? And uh, how old were you when you got your license? Oh, now that is a very interesting part. One of the one of the fellows that was on our flight uh, had been a ham before he, he became a, a military operator. And uh, he would talk to us and uh, just for the heck of it, we, while I was there, I bought a, I bought a, a bug, and I, I practiced sending, so I, so I could, could send in, in my, uh, my room, and I had a little audio amplifier there, and I could send. So anyway, I spent uh, one tour, and I came back to the states. Uh, it, it was a 15-month tour, but they cut it to 12 months. I came back to the states. Um, we had planned. Uh, my wife. Uh, fiance at the time planned to get married while I was home and I we got married and I went uh, after th that was after I finished a, a week's indoctrination course at Fort George Meade Maryland and then uh, after two weeks of uh, marriage uh, we headed back to uh, Pakistan for a second tour and we did that for financial reasons uh, we were able to uh, to get a pay raise after 23 months, a very substantial one, for uh, for airmen. And uh, but I don't recommend it. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't do it again. That was not the most fun that second year. 
But we've come back to uh, the States after the second year. We have no, the Air Force has no use for intercept radio operators in the United States. So they had to retrain me. Uh, they retrained me into administration. And uh, when I got back to the States, I was assigned to Kinslow. Kinslow Air Force Base was the name of the base. And it was a ADC base, Air Defense Command. But uh, I was attached to the... Uh, uh, the 44, the 499th Bombardment Wing was a B-52H uh, aircraft, and uh, I was assigned as an administrative clerk to that uh, to that group. And uh, we'll continue on uh, with how we got into uh, amateur radio after that. Over, one of the fellows I drove with was in the apartment below me, and he was big into CB, so he got me into CB. And we were having a lot of fun talking to the Canadians in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, across the river. I was in Sioux, I lived in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, so we're just across the river. And at nights we might have uh, eight or ten guys on. That was about the largest number of people up around. And we'd be chatting on 11 meters and having a grand old time with it. Well, after I went over four-year service, I got a station on base. And I had this, oh, this was just the most beautiful Courier 1M uh, stainless steel CB transceiver I thought was a catch me out. And one day I'm just blasting away on it on base there and I get a knock at the door. Well, this guy comes in, comes to the, I go to the door and the guy says, well, I'm an uh, amateur radio operator and uh, you're, you're getting, I'm getting a little TVI, but don't, don't be upset. And he introduced himself and um, he said, said his name was uh, Chuck Albrecht uh, and uh, invited me over to see his station. So I went over to the station and he had an NCX-3 uh, tri-band uh, uh, transceiver and he was talking to a fellow buddy of his in upstate New York and I thought well that is really great what do I have to do to get that and he told me and uh, we, uh, we went ahead and uh, found a uh, volunteer examiner to give us the, the novice exam. And we got the novice exam in 1964. And I got what at the time was a conditional license uh, in either January or February of 65 because it was too far to travel to a FCC point down around Detroit. So. Uh, I managed to do all the paperwork and had this advanced class licensee give me the uh, uh, the conditional uh, test, and I passed that. And we uh, we got on 80 meters CW and voice, and uh, did pass traffic on the Upper Peninsula sideband net on on uh, 89 39.85, 39.85. Spent. Even one night, my wife was in labor, and I had traffic to finish passing. And I said, I, we got to wait, huh? Just a couple more pieces of traffic, over. <laughs> well, I would assume then she's not a big fan of ham radio, right? No, she's, she's, she's fine. She, she's not a problem at all. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't go into labor for 12 hours, so it wasn't anything critical. If it was, I'd have been out the door in a heartbeat. And besides that, it was in the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> It snows pretty deep in uh, in in uh, uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Over. I imagine it does for sure. Lake effect snow. 
Well, after having all those experiences with uh, reading code in the service and things, I would assume then that uh, CW was probably your main mode of choice, right? Uh, surprisingly, not. I, you know, when you do it eight hours a day uh, for for two two years, uh, copy and CW, you're not really wanting to run out and do it. But but I did I did uh, handle traffic nets. Um, we would do uh, do a bit of that. I actually did more of it uh, when I moved to uh, New England and uh, set up in New England. I used to do more CW, and we did uh, CW down here. And one of the regrets in life is that I sold my Bencher, my uh, Bencher paddle uh, that uh, I had and uh, the uh, amplifier that was audio amplifier that came with it, or key, keyer rather. And I sold it on eBay, and I thought, well, only that's a hundred dollars. The guy bought caught it within 15 minutes. Somebody bought it, and I have regretted that immensely that I sold that uh, uh, that Bencher paddle. Yeah, some of those things are uh, precious memories, and probably don't uh, hear too much of it anymore. You know, things have changed. Digital has moved on the scene. Uh, is there even much need for things like like traffic nets anymore? Uh, I I know they're still on there. That you know they have uh, they have them, but I haven't really participated in them. Actually, what when I did get to Florida here, I got on the the subscription uh, simulated transceiver, the uh, the uh, QsoNet.com website. Uh, they have an application called the Cormac CQ100. And it's a, a visual uh, a transceiver that you can see and you can adjust all the controls on it. And it has excellent CW capability. Um, as you know, I'm a keyboard typist, so I, I can use it without using a paddle or a key. And I get on there and, and uh, a friend of mine, um, K3GY, is a high-speed CW operator. And we would go back and forth at around 25 words a minute and have a lot of fun with it. So I was on, I've been on uh, the Cormac CQ100 since 2006. It, uh, it started in August. I got on in October. And uh, it's about a $40 a year subscription. And I continue the descript that uh, subscription to this day. Over. Well, there are so many different uh, areas that you can get involved in amateur radio. Uh, more than we would have time or money to do. Uh, but we've seen some tremendous uh, changes in the digital technology, and that's not always uh, embraced by the older crowd. The guys have been hands for many years. Maybe you and I are an exception. <laughs> I'm 67, and I love digital. Uh, what are your thoughts about what digital is doing to the amateur radio hobby? Well, I love I love digital. I'm... Uh, I'm uh on uh, D-Star and I'm on DMR. Um, I use the, uh, uh, the, the Northwest Digital Radio, uh, Digital's uh, Thumb DV and uh, the Blue DV software by uh, PA9, uh, PA7LIM David, same one that uh, has written the software for the Peanut, the Peanut application. So I have, uh, I have, uh, DMR capability and D-Star capability. On my laptop, I have a 
a, a thumb DV, and it looks like uh, basically a thumb drive, and it plugs right in the side of my laptop that I'm using right at the moment. And at any time I want, I can get on uh, either mode. Uh, it does have, also has uh, um, Fusion. The uh, Fusion receive part works now, but David hasn't finished writing the software for transmit, so I don't uh, I don't get on Fusion uh, with it. But uh, we do uh, actively uh, participate in uh, uh, the uh, D-Star and uh, DMR. Personally, I prefer D-Star. Uh, the audio quality, I feel, is better than DMR. And you don't run into the business of having to, to click on and click off. And uh, if you're ever operating DMR, if, if, this channel, if the uh, particular talk group is busy... Uh, you have to wait and pause until somebody stops talking in order to get on it. And the same thing in order to get off it. If you don't, if somebody just gets to be a motor mouth and you can't get off, you're sitting there until he be, he becomes quiet and you can key and get off. You don't run into that problem on D-Star. And the, <clears throat> the favorite reflector on D-Star is the 004 Charlie reflector. And... Uh, my friend uh, Robert in California, N6RKH, and I would spend uh, many an hour on that reflector. And it has a large contingent of, uh, of truck drivers who, uh, amateur radio operators who are truck drivers, operate on that uh, particular D-Star. Well, what would you say uh, is the best reason to get into amateur radio? If you like to talk <laughs> and you like people and you may even be isolated, but the best reason is to get on there and, and be able to communicate with others all around the world. You make, you make fantastic friends and it just, it's just a whole new experience. I met a friend of mine, uh, VP9NJ Manuel. I met him on, uh, uh, amateur radio and uh, he lives in Bermuda and comes over to the states uh, a couple times a year and to the villages up north of me here in Florida when last time he was here and his family uh, they invited us up and they just they just put us into a, a spread of, of food and and enjoyment there for the visit so Making friends and uh, around the world and being able at times even to get to see them. That, that's what I, I enjoy so much about amateur radio. Well, it certainly makes the world a smaller place. And there are so many wonderful people around the world. It helps us uh, build uh, community uh, despite political uh, differences and things. And brings uh, brings us all together. I think it's just a wonderful hobby. Thank you for taking the time to tell your story. Well, glad, uh, glad to talk about it, uh, Danny. And as I say, I, I don't think I would have ever gotten into amateur radio normally uh, had I not been an operator first. It just, you know, I had, I had the easy part, the CW, of course. I didn't know a transistor from a, from a, uh, a rock. Uh, when I first got in, got my novice there, but uh, fortunately I had the CW, and now it doesn't make any difference. Nobody needs it, 
but it was a uh, it was a factor that you had to really be serious if you wanted to become a ham in those days because you knew you had to overcome the code requirement and five words a minute is not too difficult to overcome over no i uh, actually had one stretch where i I had gotten rid of all my radio gear, and when I got back in, I bought an HW8 Heath kit, built it, had electronic gear, made a 20-meter folded dipole antenna that I would string across our living room when I wanted to operate, and all I did was CW, and I got up to about 35 words a minute with that thing. It got to be kind of second nature, so uh, like anything else with practice, it, it does come. Yes, it sure does, sure does, and it's uh, it's really entertaining. Well, I thank you very much for this opportunity to uh, chat with you about that experience. As I say, it's a little unusual, I'm sure, but uh, we've enjoyed uh, we enjoyed traveling the path over. Thank you for listening to this radio on the Rocks Cafe Cast. Visit our website at digicomcafe.com to see our extensive digital buffet menu, and listen to all of the live conversations on our Café O'Nice stream. Or this and many more episodes of our Café Cast.